as our children are being dismissed. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take those out and turn with me to our text. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. So as a, as a uh, church that has a plurality of leadership, we have uh, elders, uh, which I'm one of, that we lead the church together. We take on the task of uh, uh, teaching the church, uh, leading the church together. And uh, as the youngest of the elders, I get to enjoy uh, the grace of learning and being encouraged by men that are older than me. So I was very encouraged this morning as we began to pray before the service when Sean said to me, this is literally the greatest text in the Bible. Don't screw it up. <laughs> so that is what I'm up against today. Uh, but I am confident that um, whatever I say, if we read this text, that we will be blessed. And, um, and uh, so if you would, bow your head, come on, pray one more time for us as we begin with this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today, Lord, humbly asking for you to be with us in this place. Lord, we ask that as we open up your word, as we read Romans 8, read the words that Paul has, has penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us. Lord, that as we hear these profound words, Lord, that they would not be something that we just hear and think, oh, that's nice. But the Lord, that these words, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have an impact on our very lives, on the way we, we think about you, the way we view our salvation, the way we view our relationship to you. So, Lord, that is our prayer today. I pray as I deliver the word that you would give me uh, the voice to do it, and that, Lord, if there's anything that I say that is at all confusing, misleading, or, or wrong, Lord, that you would wipe that out, and, Lord, what we would simply leave here today with is encouragement from your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who know me or come to Redeemer, you know that I don't typically sound like a villain off of a movie, um, but I am battling with the remnants of a cold today, so fair <coughs> uh, I may need to use this water more regularly than normal, uh, but I think uh, we can get through this by the grace of God. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. We finish off our study in Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sorrow? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. What a powerful text this is that Paul has delivered for us at the end of what has been repeatedly said in this series to be uh, one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. And Paul climaxes his message here in Romans 8 with this. As we think about this, the main theme of Paul's text here is the security of believers. In fact, he presents security for believers against all odds. There's hardly anything that Paul leaves out of here, which is why the, the title of our text today, our sermon, is Security Against All Odds. Everyone in our culture, all of us, uh, and honestly at the world at large, I think, we worry about things dealing with security. We worry about our security. We worry about the security of our financial future, our children's financial future. We worry about the security of our home, that we would have someplace that is safe and, and secure to live, which is probably why every time I go outside and into the garage, I have to like get Kaylee to let me back in because she's already locked the door behind me. We worry about the security of our country. We worry about uh, the security of our freedoms and our rights, as has been demonstrated in much of the political discussion going on right now. We worry about all these things, dealing with, with security, the security of our lives, the security surrounding us, our family, our country, all of these things. But even more important than the security of all of those things, of our material possessions, of our lives, of our families, is the importance of the security of the believer's salvation. And people worry about this. Paul anticipates that people will worry about this. He knows that this is a concern that needs to be addressed, which is why he spends much of his efforts throughout the entire chapter of Romans 8 assuring the believer of our security in Christ. In fact, all throughout chapter 8 of Romans so far, Paul's been making it clear, using clear statements that point to the security of all believers. In Romans 8, chapter 1, he starts off with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. From the get-go, at the beginning of chapter, of chapter 8, in verse 1, Paul sets the stage, sets an understanding of no condemnation. That is our status. Our status has been changed from condemned to no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, that's pretty clear in and of itself. But he goes on in verse 11. He says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, assuring us, if he did this, he will give life to your mortal bodies. That just as Christ has been raised, you will be raised. Assurance. And then finally in verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If Paul were to have stopped Romans chapter 8 at verse 30, right there, that should be enough for us, the readers of Romans 8, to come to the conclusion we are secure in Christ. That our salvation is set, it is eternal, it is not something that, that is ever removed or taken away from us. That our status of no condemnation is set, is secure in Christ Jesus. But Paul, anticipating objections, anticipating that people will have concerns even still, he 
goes on to put the final brushstrokes on this masterpiece that is Romans 8 by asserting definitively that our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. And he does this in three parts. He does this, first of all, by demonstrating that there is no person that can take our salvation away from us. He then goes on to declare that no circumstance can take our salvation. And finally, he concludes his remarks by assuring the believer beyond a shadow of a doubt that the eternal security of our no condemnation status is set. That it is certain. So let's start with the first point. The first thing that Paul does is that he assures us that no person can take away our salvation. Paul begins this section, and actually this entire text, by asking what I believe to be the most important question of this text. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? That question right there sets the stage for what will eventually come out to be the clear answer, the clear and obvious answer to this question. But let's break this question down real quick and look at the first part. So the word translated if here is known in the Greek as a conditional particle. It's pronounced as kind of an E-I, an A sound, and it signifies a fulfilled condition, something that is in fact true. So the word if here could accurately be translated as because or since, saying that it is established. This is a true reality. So it could be said then, instead of if God is for us, it could be said, since God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's not actually speaking here as though there is some possibility that maybe God isn't for us. No, this is a definitive statement of God is for us. But for the sake of argument, let's look at this as though there was ever a chance. Let's consider whether or not God is for us. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? So the first premise of this kind of argument, this logical statement that Paul is making, if God is for us. So let's, let's establish that first. Is God for us? Well, there's a, a multitude of texts that we could turn to. I would encourage you to look at John chapter 3, verse 17. Which says, for God did not spare his own son, or excuse me, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This clearly sounds like a God that is for us, not against us. It doesn't say God sent Christ into the world to condemn the world, but he did in fact save some. No, he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He's for us. Certainly, the psalmist that wrote Psalm 94 was confident that God was for him. In Psalm chapter 94, verses 16 through 23. I want to juggle this thing around this whole time, I know I am. Psalm 94, 16 through 23, the psalmist confidently writes this. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? 
those who frame injustice by statute. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out of their wickedness. For the Lord our God will wipe them out. This psalmist, the, the, the one who writes Psalm 94, is clearly assured that God is for him in the language he uses. I mean, look at this. Who is it that rises up for me against the wicked, who stands up for me against evildoers? Let us rest assured that the first premise that Paul presents here, if God is for us or since God is for us, is true. That God is indeed for us. So then the obviously rhetorical question that Paul is asking here, if God is for us, who can be against us, requires the obvious answer of no one. There is no one who can be against us since God is for us. The logic that Paul is using here is that if we could ever have our salvation taken away from us, robbed from us, removed from us, it would require a person that is more powerful than our God. That's what would be necessary in order to remove the salvation from a believer. In order for a believer to be moved from a status of no condemnation to condemnation. It would require one that is more powerful than God. So we quickly see the rhetorical nature of Paul's question here of who can be against us. Indeed, no one can be against us. So that's how Paul starts his argument, setting the stage for the rest of our text here. But he then goes on to answer some concerns. He answers the concern of whether or not God himself would ever take away our salvation. Would God himself ever take away the salvation of believers? See, and this sound may sound silly or, or, or foolish to some of us. To others, maybe not. Some of us may have grown up in a tradition where this is what was taught, this is what was common. But there are honestly, there are some in this, in, in Christendom, some in the church, some outside the church, that believe that, that God is like this figure standing over the book of life with a pencil in one hand and an eraser in the other. That is, he might write someone's name in the, in, in the book of life, those who, ah, they are now saved, they are the elect. And then with his other hand, oh, what'd they do? All right, they're out. Nope, done with them. Maybe I'll write them back in if they, if they can get back in, if they can have faith in, or if they can stop doing whatever it is that they're doing. But this is the view that some people have, a view of God as, as giving salvation and then removing salvation and then giving it back and then, and then removing it. But that is not the God that Paul depicts for us in Romans 8. In verse 32, Paul is making a classic argument from the greater to the lesser. That is, if the greater thing that Paul is saying here is true, then it is only logical to believe that the lesser thing is also true. What does he say in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Here's the point that, that Paul is making. Since God has already given his greatest, his own son, Jesus Christ, 
There is nothing greater that he could ever possibly give than his son, Jesus Christ, his own son, that he might save us, that he might give us salvation. Then obviously he will do what it takes less than that to ensure our salvation, to keep us secure. This is a staggering reality that there is nothing more that God can give for our salvation than what he has already given, that is his son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, he gave Jesus to ensure our salvation, to ensure our no condemnation status, status while we were still his enemies. While we were enemies of God, he willingly gave his own son to save us from our sin. To take his wrath upon the cross for us. Well, we were his enemies. Now that we are his children, do we not think that he will do less than he's already done to ensure our salvation? To complete our salvation as he promised in verse 30? You see, God will not take away our salvation. Paul goes on to ask, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? When we think about this question, who, who it is that condemns us? Who it is that brings charges against us? <clears throat> who it is that would want to, to take our salvation away by condemning us, that seeks our destruction? Well, an obvious answer is the devil, right? Satan would love to take away our salvation. He would love to remove our no condemnation status from us. Satan is constantly seeking to destroy us, and if he can, to take away our salvation. The same way he did with Job. If you remember, if you recall the story of Job, Satan goes to God and says, the only reason that Job is worshiping you, the only reason that he is serving you, is because of all the things you've given him. Look how you blessed him. He says, I guarantee you, if you let me have a go at Job, if you let me take away some of these blessings that you've given him, that he will deny you, that he will curse you, that he will no longer be your servant. To which God says, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You can take his life, you can, or you can take his family, you can take his, his house, you can even take his hell. Just don't take his life. And what we see throughout this story is Job suffering, losing his family, losing his possessions, losing his health, losing literally everything save his life. And despite some pretty lousy counsel from his friends, Job continues to be called by God, my servant. Never once through the story of Job was his salvation compromised, was his security lost even in the midst of all that Satan was doing to him. Satan tries to disqualify us as well. He tries to disqualify us with accusations. He's constantly reminding us that we're not good enough, that we have failed. He reminds us of the sins that we've committed even this week. He is constantly bringing accusations against us. And guess what? Usually they're true. When Satan condemns me, accuses me of being a sinner, accuses me of failing, of falling short, <coughs> My argument is, no, that's not true. I haven't failed. I haven't fallen short. No, 
That accusation is true. I have failed. I have failed this week. I have failed this morning. All of us have. So the fact that these accusations don't condemn us is not even because they're not true. It is because it is God who justifies. Therefore, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Because we are justified by God. Not because we've done the things we need to do. Not because we haven't failed, but in spite of We know that the things that the devil condemns us of sometimes are true. We know that we sin. But even when the accusations are true, that does not affect our status in Christ, which remains no condemnation. So clearly we see that nothing can take away, that no one, excuse me, can take away a person's salvation. God can't take away a person's salvation. Satan can't take away a person's salvation. Certainly men cannot take away a person's salvation. But are there any, perhaps, circumstances that can take away our salvation? Paul addresses that too, which brings us to point number two. That nothing can take away our, our salvation. And we see here, as Paul starts, excuse me, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Though the word used here is, is, is translated who at the beginning of verse 35, the Greek pronoun tis that is being translated here could also mean what? And it's apparent that that's the way Paul was using it because of the fact that everything he lists afterwards is in fact not people but things. So Paul begins to, to list this whole laundry list of situations that someone might think could rob a person of their salvation. Look at the list Paul gives. Shall, tri shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These are terrible things that a person should have to endure. And in fact, most of these things have been the reality for a majority of Paul's life since he has come to know Christ. Paul has endured all of these things. And Paul responds to this in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice the first line of this, of this quote that Paul gives from the Psalms. For your sake. Paul points out that not only can these things not take away a believer's salvation, not separate us from Christ, but these things are going to be the reality for those who desire to love and worship Christ as they were the reality for much of Paul's life. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of these things, famine, tribulation, sword, nakedness, all of these things are to be expected if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you desire to live a godly life, if you are the elect. Suffering all these kinds of things that Paul listed is to be expected in the life of the Christian. And the evidence of the one who is truly saved, who truly is a part of the elect, is the one who perseveres in the midst of such, such circumstances. That's why Paul said what he did at the end of verse 17, earlier in this, in this chapter. Let's look back at verse 16 and 17. What does Paul say? 
He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This statement that Paul gives at the end of verse 17 is not something that should cause believers to worry. It's not something that should cause us to fret for fear of, oh, I, I hope I persevere so that I can be saved. That is not the case. The, state, the statement is not one that should be feared or one that should cause us to worry because if we have been called and if we have been justified, then we can rest assured that we will be glorified. As Paul says in verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a sure thing. If we have been called, if we have been justified, we will be glorified. So then, our perseverance through such times does not keep our salvation safe. It proves that our salvation is safe. Because the ability to persevere through such times does not come from our own strength, but it comes from the Holy Spirit working within us. That is the assurance that our salvation is saved. So the question then, that should naturally need to be answered next, is what about people who leave the faith? What about people who are living lives that look like a believer's life? They've been going to church for years and years, they even talked about a conversion experience. And then all of a sudden, they've denied all of that. They are now denying Christ. They are worshiping other things, whether it's themselves, whether it's money, whether it's lifestyle. They are clearly demonstrating themselves to no longer be worshiping Christ, but worshiping other things. That's the question that naturally needs to be answered next. What about the person? who perhaps after facing some kind of circumstances that we just mentioned, decides to turn and walk away from the church, walk away from Christianity. What about these people? Well, John tells us about these people in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see, there really is no such thing as leaving the faith. We use that phrase, and I guess we understand what it means sometimes. But the phrase is sort of inaccurate, right? Faith in Jesus Christ, saving, true saving faith, to be a part of God's elect, to be saved, is not something that can be undone. And in fact, as John tells us, someone who, who seems to have left the faith was truly never in the faith. They never truly believed. Do not lose confidence in your salvation when you see someone who has professed faith in Christ and then turned their back on him. These people are chaps growing up with the wheat. They are not producing fruit. They are not true believers. They look like they had authentic faith but prove themselves to be outside the fold. So do not look at these 
and, 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 and be discouraged. Do not look at these people and wonder. And we lose our salvation. Indeed, Paul makes it clear that not only can no person take away your salvation, but no circumstance can take your salvation either. Now Paul ends this section with a beautiful word of both praise and encouragement to the church in Rome. Verse 37, he starts this last section. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Point number three. We are more than conquerors. What on earth does this phrase even mean? If you've ever read this phrase and wondered, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? How can you do something more than conquer? What, is, what does that even mean? If you conquer, how can you, you go beyond that and do more than that? Well, the phrase, which is actually only used in this one place in the New Testament, this Greek phrase, it comes from the Greek compound word, and I'm going to try and pronounce this as best as possible, Hupernikeo, which means to overconquer, or to completely conquer, or to conquer without any threat to your life or health. In other words, it is an easy victory. Not just an easy victory, but an easy victory where there was really no risk of loss. There was really no chance you were ever going to lose. To give you an example, I have an almost two-month-old baby Elijah. For the next five years, anytime we wrestle, I will more than conquer Elijah. Unless he's like exposed to gamma radiation or something, save that. I will always win at a wrestling match with Elijah. Always. I, and honestly, I will, I will be under no risk of losing. The, the, the reverse is true if I ever arm wrestle Jacob. He will overconquer me every time. I will never win without even a risk of loss. That is how Paul describes a believer's salvation. That we will indeed overconquer this life. Sin, death, there is no even risk of loss in Christ Jesus. This points us back to the first question Paul asked. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Then finally in verse 38 and 39, Paul gives the clear, logical, and profound conclusion to all the arguments that he has been making in the past few verses. Three thirty-eight and 39 together. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ our Lord. What a word of praise and encouragement to us. Paul says, okay, consider everything I've said so far, and now I'm telling you, we are overconquerors, more than conquerors. And in fact, he starts verse 38, for I am sure. Paul is telling us, I do not have any hint of doubt in my mind that we will indeed overcome all these things. That nothing, that, and everything fits under what Paul has said here. There's nothing that couldn't be fit into one of these categories, and none of them can separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus. What good news that is for us today. I'm confident today that there are some here in this room that have struggled with confidence in their security and their salvation. That have wondered whether or not they could have lost their salvation. Whether or not they have, they have done enough to maintain their salvation. Whether or not God still loves them after what they have done. Paul knew there would be. This is why Paul wrote this chapter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote to encourage you that you are secure in Christ. No one can take that away from you. Nothing can take that away from you. Indeed, you are more than conquerors through Christ. Through him who loved us. There is not a single person, there is not a single circumstance that can take that away from us. The devil can't take it. Human beings can't take it. We cannot take it from ourselves. We are God's possession, his children, his beloved. And so I ask you the question Paul asks us at the very beginning. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Let's pray. God, we have nothing left to do after hearing these words that you, that you inspired Paul to write here in Romans 8. We have nothing left to do but to praise you and glorify you and thank you. If we are in Christ Jesus, Lord, we can rest assured that we are safe in your arms.